One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey guys, it's Kayla. Candice isn't able to join us today, but we are all still so directionally challenged. We thought we would have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s, but surprise, we don't. And that's okay. It really is. And you know, there's a lot happening in our world right now. And when you watch it, you realize those are real people and real lives. And maybe you're one of them. Maybe someone you know is experiencing real trauma right now. Maybe you're still dealing with the repercussions of the pandemic and where your life is now. I know I am. The truth is on some level, every single one of us is going through some form of grief, large or small. And that's where today's guests come in. Amy Choi and Rebecca Lair are founders of the Mashup Americans. And this is a creative understanding that connects to the diverse, modern American audience. Together, both of them have spent over three years in journalism. You have heard them on NPR, TED Talks, Elle, Teen Vogue, Bloomberg Business Week. the list could go on forever. The Mashup Americans has a new series called Grief Collected, and that's where we're going to go today. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Rebecca Lair and Amy Choi of The Mashup Americans. And I am here with Rebecca Lair and Amy Choi. Ladies, good morning. Thank you for being here. I'm so happy. We're finally doing this. I'm a huge fan of Mashup Americans and Grief Collected. This has been a long time coming. And I just want to start at the basics for our listeners who have yet to listen to Grief Collected and are going to learn about Mashup Americans. You guys tackle grief on your audio series, Grief Collected. And 
this tackle is bold, yet eloquent, and it is not a simple one. And just so we all have a greater understanding and begin on the same page, what is grief exactly? And to take it a step further, as you do in your audio series, what is the particularly American approach to grief? It's such a good question. And I want Amy to do it first. Oh, my God, the pressure, the pressure. Well, Kayla, thank you so much for having us. And let's see, I think our understanding that we came to what grief is, how we identify grief is grief is the experience that your mind, body and spirit go through after a loss that is critical to your sense of self. And I say that because I think particularly in pandemic times and particularly in American culture, we tend to be very black and white. There's like a lot of binaries that we're trying to work our way through. And we often think of grief as only linked with death loss and that no other grief kind of exists. And death loss is obviously huge and there is nothing like that right? That like we kind of have to grapple with existentially and spiritually and also just like physically the idea of losing a person. And also what we have come, what what we were feeling in ourselves as human beings, what throughout like the past, I don't know, decade of our lives, what we were experiencing in the pandemic, what we were experiencing as mothers with seeing what our children were going through and the losses that they suffered in the pandemic, both death losses and others. We were like, grief. there's so much happening here that is more than just, just is the wrong word, but that is more. It, it, and it's, it, it's, that is why grief, I think, is so difficult to pin down and why it is so difficult of a human experience to kind of capture and define is because it is so all-encompassing. And what we came to, in addition to that kind of like this boundary or this box around grief is that it's the experience that you have after like a fundamental loss to who you are, whether that is the loss of a parent or a sibling or a best friend or the loss of a future that you thought you were going to have, the loss of a belief system, the loss of innocence, that these are all human experiences that we will all have. And so kind of, I think the larger journey that we came to is that grief is also a hugely important part of trying to define grief and trying to understand grief is to accept that grief is life. Like grief is a part of life. And the more that we can kind of get our arms around that, the more that we can maybe stop fighting it so much as learning to live with it and embrace it. Now, Rebecca and I are very not like, here's the silver lining of what's going, we're never going to be people who are like, you know, the great part of grief is this because it's horrible. It's such a hard, hard thing to do. But I think accepting that it is part of what, what we are universally experiencing and in some ways being grateful that we have been able to have and hold such like big emotions as like love and joy and grief is part of how we are trying to understand how to like be human beings in the world. Oh, gosh, what an incredible point of view and perspective. And I'm sure re- the releasing of Grief Collected is, is it's really kind of perfect timing because, you know, as you said, we all did go through the pandemic and there's a lot of repercussions. And I think people are so eager to go straight back to life exactly how it was before. And as, you know, our American culture puts on a pedestal, you know, trying to, you know, being okay, everything's fine. We're told even as kids, oh, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And it's, what if we're not? 
What if we're not? And to let that be okay. And the forward moving piece of it, that's exactly it. There's something about Americanness. And we say this, you know, the project of the Mashup Americans is about thinking about our hyphen identities. So I'm a Salvadoran Jewish Angelino, just to, to shout out. That would be, I didn't realize how much more LA and California are of my hierarchy above American, but then American later. Amy is a, a Korean American from the Midwest, which also has its own, you know, cultural things. We married men. We happen to have men from different cultural backgrounds than us. We have children. What do we name them? How do we raise them? What languages are they going to speak? What religions are are we going to, how, you know, are, are we going to practice if, if any? And so those are the big questions that the Mashup Americans has always been wrestling with and actually joyously wrestling with, like the inherent tension of being deeply rooted in something while also future looking. Like, what do you, what do you get to choose? What are the things you don't get to choose because they're just in you <laughs> and you may have to deal with? Because you didn't get to choose them. And what are. Oh, but that's why we have therapy. Yeah, obviously, therapy. <laughs> There's a whole section of our website dedicated to guilt. So if you want to check that out. So I think that is part of that is the root and like the foundation on which we are building the Grief Collected series, which is this grappling with some of the losses and griefs that we didn't even realize we had because they're so formative to who we are as first generation Americans, you know, like my mom's was born and raised in El Salvador. Her parents are both from originally from Germany, though my grandmother ended up in the thirties in Brazil with her family at age 12. So, and my grandfather at 20 ended up in El Salvador. Then they met in Brazil anyways. So that story is that then the that in my mom's family alone, there have been multiple immigration points, right? Multiple points where they've been actually fleeing something in the last 100 years, in just two generations. And when you think about that as how humans are formed, what family culture is, what personalities are, those are, those are a lot of losses. There's lots of beauty in it. Like, you know, I'm so proud of my connection to all of these cultural touchstones, all of who I am. But there's also a lot of me that I don't totally understand because it has been because of that rupture, because of what has been ripped away by other circumstances. And I only point that out here because I think that is the sort of part of the entry in and then to let alone personal you know, grief and losses that we've experienced as as human beings uh, in different ways in both Amy and my life. So trying to, and you know, you've listened, but it's not really a, a show where we talk about our personal losses. It's really trying to understand the experience of it. Like what is happening in our brains? Like why are we so, you know, why do we fall so much? Or like weird things, you get like loopy in the brain when you actually have you know, when you're grieving something, there's lots that's happening neurologically that it, it helps to know. There's something about what we do, the Mash of Americans as the whole is about like, and I think what you guys do so beautifully is about, it's like reflecting the real experiences that people have so that it ultimately you help people understand it better by having really smart conversations about it. But it's also 
very validating because you're like, oh, I didn't make it up. My whole, my period was late because of grief, because it affects your brain and your thyroid and your, your hormones and all of these things are impacted. And it's not, it, it, it it's, it's real. <laughs> like you didn't make it up. And I think that's part of the, the approach that we've taken in this work. Well, and that is one thing I wanted to discuss is how grief affects our bodies, because that was your you guys did such a fantastic episode on this. And I think it's something that we don't talk about enough, how our body does give us signals. And there are things that we can be aware of certain symptoms. And I know appetite changes was one of them. Headaches, like you said, clumsiness, you're stumbling into things, whatever. So our our body is communicating to us that we are grieving. And even if we're pretending we're fine and we, we need to listen to our bodies, it's something we can't ignore. So what did you, what else did you guys learn in doing an episode on this and interviewing someone and just researching and being a part of it? And have you found that you've been able to implement it into your lives? Oh, oh, there's so, yes. Oh my gosh, there's so much. But I just want to say one thing in relationship to this because I was listening to Isabel Wilkerson who wrote the books Warmth of Other Sons and Cast, a wonderful journalist. And she talks about people as species, humans. She's like, our species. And I think it's like a really good a reset to remind ourselves that we're animals and that we may categorize ourselves in different ways, in different castes. That's the context which she's doing it which is a, a, a natural thing to do, but often ends up in a horrific circumstances for people, but that we are, we are animals. And I think this is the part of the, the part about exploring our bot, that how it impacts our bodies that reminds us that like, even though we, we joke about, you know, the internet rots your brain. And then we're all just like, we're just sort of like floating heads pretending that we don't exist in bodies. But then your kid has hand, foot, and mouth and you got it at school. And you're like, you know what? I'm talking about your kid. By the way, everyone, it's my kid. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, and then it's like, no, you're a human, you're a species. We're animals. And we, and you still shit and piss and do all these things and, and you can't control them. And, and that's, it's helpful to like remember that we can't even despite what like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, RIP to them, want, we are not going to be floating brains that live forever. That's not what we are. And so with that, Amy and I found just like some of the spectacular uh, psychiatrist in her who works at Harvard Medical School Dorothy Hollinger, who's in her 70s. So she also has the benefit of life experience, which was a joy, you know, talking to intergenerationally, who wrote a book called The Anatomy of Grief. Anyways, Amy, what was like, there were some amazing things about her brain, but you can. Oh, well, I think, first of all, the only amendment that I would say to what Rebecca's beautiful answer is Elon Musk and Peter Thiel don't need to rest in peace. Like, fuck them. I don't care. They can rest in a lot of anxiety for all eternity. But Dorothy Hollinger, what she did for us, I think, in this idea that like we are animals and remembering that we are like part of the natural world and part of a natural order of things as much as like we have distanced ourselves from that. I think part of that was like, one of the impetus that Rebecca and I had in kind of diving into grief at this moment in time, even though it's been a topic that has kind of been big in our lives throughout our whole lives, is that 
right now, or when we first started developing it, like in kind of early 2021, was when we felt the most disembodied, like the most untethered to our physical bodies. I think because of the place that we were in the pandemic, we were all just little boxes, like looking at each other through technology. But also at the same time, sitting in so much fear of other people's bodies like so it was such a physical that that mind body disconnect right look we can do it all the same from here but also we're doing this because we're terrified of getting you know really sick which was a real you know and and didn't it it was very confusing it was it was very scary. And I think all of us kind of, you know, and this is like a, a a symptom of kind of modern life in general, right? Like being so online or 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 being able to do things remote all the time that we felt disconnected from our own bodies. And then we were also grieving, which made you feel both in your body and like unknown to yourself in some way. I think that's that's something about grief is that you kind of founder a little bit. You're not quite sure where you are. What Dorothy Hollinger taught us is that, you know, A, these are all very natural physical responses. It's like your amygdala is doing this. You, you're not, you're not losing it. Your body is doing what it needs to do to process these huge events. And it will show up in all of these different ways, which can be different for lots of different people. But that she connects humans to every other species that also grieves, like animals grieve. I think people have heard stories about like elephants and whales, which are these like really elevated animals in our imaginations. But like one of the most astonishing anecdotes, an observable fact that researchers see is that when crows grieve, when a murder of crows, which is, by the way, like the the coolest name of a group of things hanging out. When a murder of crows like loses one of their crow buddies, the rest of the crows fly into the corpse. They, they, they stand there and they scream. And then they're in, they sit as a group in silence for 15 minutes and then they all fly away together. And it's like, First of all, right? Like, holy shit. So you're saying crows handle grief better than we do. A hundred percent. Yes. Mm-hmm. What a, like, <laughs> all we have to do is li- do the exact same thing. Just model it off of a murder of crows and we'll be in good shape. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every moment of tension, real or imagined, were under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for the brothers of the House of Windsor, Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother, but that all began to crack as they each married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. I'm Matt Ellison. And I'm Sydney Battle. And we're the hosts of Wondery's podcast, Dis and Tell, where we unpack pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds. We recently looked into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than just these two brothers. It stretches back all the way to the history of the British monarchy, and it's a battle for who will shape its future. Did their feud stem from the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Dis and Tell early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And we're back. And and I think also, you know, Kayla, I know we have kids around the same age. If you think about when the pandemic started, and this isn't just about the pandemic, but just as like an entry point, you know, we had, I was looking at pictures. I have to do this for myself to remind myself that I had a six month old when it started. And, and, you know, I think you, you have a kid about this. Yeah. No, my daughter was six months when it, yeah, we were right there together. Those are babies. And that was your first child. It was my second, but like what was already happening in your body was a whole nother set of, of things that are beautiful, but also completely different from before. And so to you, it's the layers that every person has of life building on life. And then you layer on loss and grief, which is just what loving and living is in, in different, you know, to different extents. It, it's, it's hard to disentangle the pieces that are ha- like why this is happening, why, that, you know, in your brain, you might become more clumsy. You might like, ha- you might get really nauseous all the time, you know, all of these things, but it, it's, it's also real. <laughs> and I think that's something I, I'm doing sort of a not let my own brain erase it. Like I, I think I do every month. I try to go back and look at pictures from around three years ago. <laughs> and, and I try to just be like, I sent Amy one this weekend. I was like, this is the kind of baby I had then. Just to remember, he also had hand, foot, and mouth then. Just so everyone understands, the first, the first week of lockdown, he was like, like this six month old with like blisters on his face and it was raining here in LA. And I was like, this 
this doesn't feel good. And but anyways, I just think just remembering like what it means to be alive is all of these layers building on layers. And if you can be with some kindness to yourself to understand that you are just simply not alone and it's physiological is a huge, I don't know, a step towards like loving Mm -hmm. yourself and being healthy. Right. And as you guys say, grief is living. And it really is as simple as that. If you are living, you will be grieving. And all of us are going through some form of grief, whether big or small right now. There was always a little bit in, in us and we're always processing. I'm curious, what was your relationship to grief growing up, both of you, in your families? Was it something that you guys talked about constantly and you called family meetings and you sat around and talked about? Or was it the opposite where just you didn't discuss it at all? Because it just seems like such a huge topic to tackle and you did it so well. I'm interested to know, does our childhood and how we learned to process grief affect us now? Oh, wow. Well, this is very, I'll go first because mine's faster. No, we did not talk about anything. So I, no, never. I came from a family where I come from a family where like the hard things and the really, really scary, big emotional things are, were very, very hard and scary for the adults in my life. And so, and their coping mechanism was just to like, doink, 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 like the power down sound. You know, when people died, they just kind of disappeared from our lives. When there were scary things that could lead to something like that, they were like whispered about like, oh, maybe somebody has cancer. But like we didn't talk about it. And I think the 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 kind of landscape of trauma that my parents had to suffer through, you know, they were both children during the Korean War. They came to the U.S. They grew up dirt poor. And I think we tackle a lot of this in our ancestral grief episode is that they carried so much grief and culture loss and rupture and they did not have the tools or capacity to manage that. So it was just, I had, I lived now as an adult, I can understand what was happening like in my parents' kind of emotional lives and like the way that we grew up. But it was kind of as far as talking about grief in particular, it was just like a a landscape of silence. So as an adult, I've kind of gone, you know, we're all just like little products of how we came up. So, you know, like my kids and I, my kids are a little bit older than both of yours. I have an almost 10 year old and a seven year old. We, and they also grew up in the pandemic and, and because they weren't babies, they were more conscious of what was happening. So we talked a lot about death. They have had and managed a lot of death loss and, you know, kind of personal losses my daughter's best friend died in the middle of the pandemic. So like we've navigated a lot of grief together as a family and my approach has been completely out. So we talk about grief and death and loss all the time now, but that is not what my kind of, what my upbringing was like, but it did motivate me to want to talk about it more. And so, and Rebecca. Well, I'm being very intentional about it. You've been, yeah. Yeah, my family has great tools. There's this fun, fun language that people use, which ancient technologies, which is like, which I've decided to try to integrate into my vocabulary. But we have, you know, my family is Jewish and very, the tools of Judaism for grieving are really clear and beautiful. They're like really great ritual containers for for it. And so, 
my family has been always very clear about that, how you show up for each other. Uh, and also Judaism is basically like when you're dead, you're dead. So just to be, so there in that you can be a little more blunt or in, based on our ritual about like how things wrap, you know, like you can be soulful. We have, you know, relationship to our dead ancestors. We, we memorialize them every year. Actually, this weekend I took my, my grandmother died last fall while we were making this show. She was almost 103. So I had, I went with my son who's three and a half and we just like sat by her grave. She's next to my grandpa. We put a blanket out and we just like read books and played with trucks there. And so that's a way that now my three and a half year old has been to, you know, a grave site and a cemetery multiple times and there's no discomfort with it. In that it, certainly. I think we had those tools and we showed up in community. That's something about being also in diasporic communities and in small communities is just like you you show up because in Judaism, for instance, you need 10 people to do the prayers for when you do m most ritual prayers. It's called a minion. If you're being very traditional, which is not for me, that would be 10 men who've been bar mitzvahed. And you know what? I'm doing a big flip of the bird to that. But in feminist Judaism, any 10 people can do that together. So in that, you always need to show up. And my mom comes from El Salvador, which had so few people in Jewish community that you people would have to show up, you know, to sit with a body overnight because you needed a Jewish person to be with the body before it's buried. And in Judaism, you bury very quickly so that its soul has a peaceful transition. So teens would go sit overnight with, because it, it was such a, it just is like, you have to show up. We need this. There's not enough people here. And we all play that role in community. So in that way, my parents both are like, we always showed up. If somebody, even if it was deemed a very tragic, we were there at the Shiva, at the funeral, you showed up and you, you made yourself a love and support. The flip is, I don't think we really talked about like generational grief, like you tell the stories of our immigration patterns, but we didn't really, I'm only starting to see some of the thought things I thought were personality or family traits are actually significant losses and grief. So yeah, but we, we, we were in it. Like I, I understood that it was my job as a person to show up and to not be afraid of being with people who are grieving. And that is something my parents absolutely taught me from a very young age. I mean, you guys have such an interesting take on grief that, quite frankly, I didn't even think about before listening to your series. And you do talk to trauma therapist Linda Tai in an episode. How And she talks about how grief is typically framed as, I had something and then now it's gone. Right? So it's something that, like, and which is a linear, that's the linear way I've always thought of grief. But you open it up and talk about how grief can be ambiguous. And the ancestral grief is something I had never truly thought of either. And I just am so grateful that this series exists because I think grief is something that people are scared to take on and scared to tackle. And you have done it. And I hope that with this episode of Directionally Challenged that people will now go to the mashupamericans.com and listen to your your series as well as many others. Can you give us more of a historical context of grief and the ancestral? I feel like we breezed through it just for a little bit. And for those who haven't listened to it yet, 
Can you just give a little bit more of a detailed description or of your experience doing that part? Because I just found it fascinating and it opened my mind. Wait, we're going to. But before we do, Kayla, what was your family relationship oh, to grief? Okay, great question. So I am a daughter of a therapist. And so we would have a quote unquote family meeting. But I mean, here's the thing. I will tell you, as an adult, I appreciate it. As a child, it was such an eye roll. And I really hated how in depth every every experience had to be, you know, it's one, there's one big thing of trauma. And then we all have to sit as a family and discuss it. And each person's given their time to discuss it. But the truth is my relationship with my family, each member is great. And I think we were able to move through each period of grief successfully because of that. So I mean, I may try to do that with my family. I'm not a therapist, nor do I even practice or pretend to be. So I know I will not do it as well as my mom did, <laughs> but I can try, right? I can try. And we'll see how that, I, I don't know what that is going to do for me as a mother in my family experience handling grief. My husband's family is the exact opposite, never talks about it. At all. They don't talk his dad is a man of few words still to this day. So they, it's really is the opposite. So we'll probably find somewhere in the middle that works for both of us. But yeah, so that's my is experience. He, I, I know we're not doing couples therapy. Is he open to your facilitating yes. these things? Actually, I think my yes. husband appreciates it and really wishes that he had had more of that growing up. Totally. I love that you had a family meeting. It's very inspiring. All actually. the time. Not just one. I mean, I'm talking <laughs> maybe maybe once every other weekend. I'm not joking. So, you know, if you ask my, my brothers about it, there there's two boys, two girls. I think the brothers were really over it. And by the end, when they were teenagers, they were like, nope, not doing it and would walk out. Right. So like it is it does become daunting at some point to. But I think there's probably a happy medium where you can address issues and move through them as a family, but maybe don't have to sit for an hour and discuss it. Right. I want to know. But now I want to speak to their spouses about how it plays out in their lives. Yeah. Anyways, now, I, now I'm doing a Yule family. I love it. <laughs> My mom will love this episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shout out to mom. Dear mom, Dr. Yeah. Mom. Yeah, so then going to the ancestral, that actually is a perfect parlay because I do think that understanding what our parents and our grandparents and their parents have gone through and how it has trickled down and created our family dynamic is important. There's a couple of different elements. You know, there's been study for, you know, a decade now, decades about epigenetics, which is the transfer of it's, it's how trauma actually changes our DNA. And so that has been a field of research that has been expanding and that we're learning so much about in that, say, for example, you know, Rebecca's grandparents on both sides were fleeing the Holocaust, right? They saw the writing on the wall. This is also where our trauma shows up, we're like, so when do we leave? Is it now that we leave or do we leave later? <laughs> I mean, all of us have fled bad situations. So, you know, what, what, what genetic research has shown is that that level of trauma, you know, we can say something as kind of obvious and glib maybe as like that changes a person, right? Obviously it's going to change you. That also actually, it like really changes you, right? It can change your genetic makeup and that gets passed on to your children and to your grandchildren and on and on and on. So there's one aspect of that where it like, it truly just does change our physicality 
there has been a lot of research in indigenous communities about how, you know, colonization, residential schools, how it has dramatically changed the, the health consequences of indigenous communities today, addiction patterns like dysregulation, and that that is something that is is both em- emotional and physical trauma like bonded together, right, and creating these outcomes. The ancestral trauma that we're discussing, which is grounded in 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 like observed research, in like biological research, it is the way that we experience it, the way that we see it, the way that I would define it after learning about it and studying it is just the idea that like, you know, we're saying that life is grief, right? That like grieving is living. When when we have huge losses kind of in our family tree that are not allowed to give expression, the grief tends to become who that person is, right? So Adrienne Marie Brown, actually, her her episode that we had with her when we talked about kind of like what the potential is for how grief can transform us, she says something and it feels very much almost that Adrienne Marie Brown and that Linda Tyre, like in conversation with each other, she says, you know, if grief is not allowed to flow, then it becomes your shape. And I think that that's a lot of what we see in kind of when we're discussing ancestral grief is that the grief of your grandmother, it it shapes her life, right? And then that your grandmother shapes your mother's life. And then your mother, if she does not then kind of learn how to hold and process her own life and grief and her grandmother's, then that gets passed on to her daughter. Right. So it it shapes family systems. It shapes our relationships to each other. It shapes how we learn how to express anything, especially grief. It impacts like how we process all of the traumas that are inevitable in our lives, big and small, just because we're human and we live. And so all of that impacts each individual person. And then there's like the other, the loss piece of that part of what happens in people who have migrated. And this is where it's like, it's a very mashup feeling and a perspective that Linda Tai was talking about. Not only do we have this like, you know, that could happen, that sort of grief, like the grief becoming the shape of a family or the grief becoming the shape of an Israel, that can happen in a family that has been in a single location for generations, right? Like, because that's humans live. The additional level of kind of loss that can happen for mashups, for immigrant families, for people who have been dislocated or refugees, is that then you are separated from all of the culture and tradition and tools and community that would have supported you in that grief. So suddenly now, you know, people are trying to understand and grieve, but without the language, the tools, the tradition, without their murder of crows that all know how to come in and scream with them and that know that that is like a natural container for the grief. And so that's like another level of loss that needs to be navigated through. Right. And and some of the markers, again, and we've talked about the particularly American way, which is, you know, everybody, we've learned there are not stages to grief. That's a big takeaway. We, we have to ask Dr. Mom that after this, but, you know, but the, the level of um, <laughs> disdain for the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, because it's not reflective of the human experience and is not apparently based in any evidence or science. Oops. I think we as Americans, we love to move forward. We like to have like, this is, oh, we, we solved it. It's resolved and we're going, and we are, we are hyphen Americans, but we are, and 
the American is a very important part of that. So for us, say we're in, we're you know first generation, we are swimming in this space. We're this is what what we are given, and so it's, it's hard to figure out. You know, Amy had some pretty tragic losses, as she mentioned over the last few years. Her daughter lost her best friend, and I happen to be in a space where I like know a person who deals with, you know, developmentally like grief for young kids and who also from a Jewish perspective. And, but I'm, I was able to connect Amy with that person, which was very, very helpful. But there wasn't another natural space for Amy to go to for resources or for support and community. I mean, other than she is loved, right? And she is loved. And it has a community, which is not other than. That's a very important thing. But I, it, to not have, what do you do? How do you create some ritual? How do you create, you know, what does it look like for you? And in some places, you know, there's there's also a lot of really interesting history and American history. There was such a, like an 80 year period, basically, where there was so much death in the US between like the Civil War and War, World War II. So that there was so much death that basically, it's not funny, that's sorry, it's just gallows, gallows giggle. There's, there was just not time and there were too many people dying. There were too many people dying for there to be a cultural way of acknowledging it. And truly, so it just it got erased. It would just be like, we're still going. You know, like, wait, 10% of our population has died. Oh, well, we're still going. And and so whereas, you know, you might in other I keep touching my clothes, you can't see this on audio, but you know, there would be a, a in I believe in Vietnamese culture, you'd wear like a white band or something uh, on your arm, or there's a lot of cultural markers in different places where everybody would know on the street, you are a grieving person. Yeah. And it was true in America too, until this period. Yes. Which, you know, there's a lot we can, uh, there's a separate podcast about American history that we could, we should all get into how we all need to learn more about it. Cause we're not, you know, I think the sense that we're all invented today, again, is a very American sense. We're, it, no, there's history. Like we are, we are a product of history and we are a product of these things. And so anyways, just that, that there were ways to tell people, you know, it doesn't have to be, I keep thinking of, I keep joking about, this is a, deep cut for the people who studied, you know, literature in college, but some like, like Casa de Bernarda Alba, like everyone's a, a widow wearing like long black veils for the rest of their lives the second they lost their spouse. Like that's not what we're, we're talking about, but you'd always know that that woman was, and there's, a, that woman was the widow, you know, and how you could support them and engage them. You'd also use that to judge them if they ever tried to like, not be sad in their lives again. So there's other challenges to that. But I, I do think that like, how can we show people that we are in need and, and give people an opportunity to show up for us while we're also telling them? And that's something like, we don't know what that looks like yet, but we also get to invent our culture together. That's the beauty of America. So maybe taking from these, the wisdom of all of, of, of what makes us, uh, you know, our, our hyphens and applying that together, we can create a better, you know, grieving culture. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. (laughs) 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Kristen. And this is Jen from My Mom So Hard. And we're here to talk about By Heart. Do you remember when you were nursing and you were like, I want to give the best thing I can to my baby? Well, we've got that for you. It's called By Heart, and it is a infant nutrition company built from the ground up to deliver real innovation on behalf of babies and parents. Curious about By Heart? Redeem your welcome offer at byheart.com slash podcast with code MOMS20 for a limited time. Additional terms and conditions apply. Tell them my mom so hard sent you. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Did you guys find any grieving practices throughout this experience that you do now or I mean because that's that's what I think the the key element is is right right as you were saying Rebecca is like trying to figure out how to grieve and what those practices are and then hopefully passing it on so then people are learning and then we can maybe get to a place where you know we don't it's just so much more accepted oh yeah I think for me I would say so if you have little kids, I know that, that, you know, whatever, like, you know what? Watch Coco. It's a great movie. Watch Inside Out. Just think about your feelings. Maybe I'm just like, I'm shilling for Pixar. Maybe they'll hire us. But I think there are, one is thinking about, you know, making ofrendas or like, you know, your version of what is your ancestor mantelpiece look like? How do you think about talking about your family or friends or what whoever's meaningful to you and telling their stories and processing what ha- and 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 what happened to them with your with your children this is as a parent that has been extremely helpful whether you mark it by time like around dia de los muertos or something like that or around their death anniversary i'm the death anniversary holder in my life so if you if you share yours with me i'll call anybody i remember the death of anniversary of all deaths near (laughs) to people near me. And it's a good, and I also do that for like when my mother-in-law died, this will be the 10 years this year. That's not a, 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 a ritual that my, my family, my, my husband's family has. And I'm like, yeah, we do. We do now. So I'm the one who texts the whole family on the day of, that she died. And also this year, I'm like, we have to be together. It's 10 years. And what can we do? And so I think 
that's something that I would say is I take many cultures have a version of this. And I think you can interpret it as you will, but as a way of keeping memory, this is about death loss specifically alive and also using it as a letting, you know, and every time I text my extraordinary brother-in-law who I love, he's like, oh, I was feeling really sad this week and I, I didn't quite know why. And, you know, he's feeling it physically, but he doesn't make that connection. And so being able to do that, you will feel it. You feel it in your bones when these things have happened to you and the time of year that it happens. So there's that. And those are a couple that I think can be very useful and any person could do. But that's so beautiful. I think of you with your family at the 10-year anniversary and honoring her. And, you know, you guys talk so much about how grief doesn't have to be a horrible experience and feeling it is important and supporting each other is important. But even just knowing and and allowing it to not have to be horrible all the time is truly incredible. And I feel like we could talk about this forever. And I really want to encourage our listeners who have been moved by this conversation to go to the mashupamericans.com. Make sure you listen to their audio series, Grief Collected. And I mean, before I let you guys go, I do we touched on it in the beginning, but I want to take you back to 2013 when you first started Mashup Americans. And will you share with us what inspired you? What made you feel like we need this in our world? Because we do. And I'm so happy that it exists for everyone. First of all, Kayla, you're so nice. This is That's just the nicest thing to say ever. But it's true. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. But it's true. Yeah. 2013. I... It's very funny because now as doyen of digital media, I will say that 2013, we were coming off of, I don't know, recession number 12,000 of my adult life. And I'm a journalist by background. Rebecca has been in the arts and kind of has this expertise in like meeting people, I I think is like the the great, like meeting people where they are, bringing audiences together. She was uh, the director of business development, WNYC. We were friends because we met through her husband, who is my best friend from high school in the Midwest. So we became friends kind of like in our late 20s. And I think at that sort of inflection point, both in our personal lives and our careers, we were thinking about like, kind of broadly, (laughs) how do we show up? How do we be most ourselves? I think we were getting to the point where we were kind of becoming more confident kind of in both of those arenas, personal and professional, that we were like, well, somehow they got to come closer together because like code switching all the time doesn't feel right. And that's not really us. And we were asking just a lot of the questions of each other and of our friends that are kind of central to the project of the Mashup Americans, which is at the core kind of who are we and how do we want to live this life? But also, you know, what are the traditions we're taking? What is it? What does it mean to make new family? What does it mean to create traditions? Like, what do we feel guilty about? What are we working on? And so I think, you know, we started to realize, and I think as being media professionals, like, okay, well, so here's, here's the world of like stories and news that we consume. And like 97% of it was like white dudes right? And they're established as the truth. And then there's like a little column next to it that's like, 
black voices and then maybe a little skinnier column that's like Spanish, <laughs> you know, and like way in the corner would be and like there's like a chili a, yeah, a, a picture like a, of a jalapeno. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there'd be, you know, like maybe hidden away in some dark corner of like the media landscape, there'd be like queer things and Asian things. We're like, okay, this is not this is not how we live. And I think we wanted to be able to tell stories and see stories reflected back at us that reflected us and the way that we experience the world. In the words of the great Mindy Kaling, we thought, why not us? We started with a Tumblr where we were just curating like pictures, stories that kind of reflected our worldview. At the time in 2013, there was a lot of like, David Chang makes a soy glazed turkey and it was on the cover of Savour. And we were like, maybe we're obsolete. Then 2016 came, we were like, nope, turns out this is a battle for our lives. And we just grew from curating stories. We launched a newsletter, which still comes out every Saturday morning, which you should sign up for. We then started hosting original stories. Our website became kind of a repository of humor and tips and it's like then some really deep personal essays. In 2000, a couple years later, we launched our podcast with American Public Media and KPCC in LA. And then we built our studio and we now help other people learn how to both reach our audience and tell stories authentically. We like to incept a lot. We like to incept how you should always be hiring women and people of color and mothers into your jobs. We like to incept, you know, who are experts in the world and who you hold up as experts, which I think you two do beautifully on your podcast as well. Like, it's not all just like the white guy from Harvard. Like, there are so many other people that you could be speaking to and learning from. And so I think what we felt was really important was just to understand that like demographically mashups are the future. Like the census numbers show it, everything show each decade it goes on. So when we started in 2013, we were trying to even, you know, people are very literal and that's not us. We're not very literal. <laughs> and but trying to explain to people what you're doing and why sometimes you're like, just because you're idiots. Sorry, this is a negative version. You're idiots and can't understand that actually this is the future. But here's some demographic numbers. Good proxy. I mean, a mashup isn't necessarily somebody who's more than one race. But if you try to think of that as a that person is a product of a mashup marriage or what it means. If the first time that was on the census, even as a question, was the year 2000. 2010, it grew by 32% relative to the overall population growth of, I think, 9%. Between 2010 and th 2020, which is when we started mashup early in that, 276% increase in people who identify as more than one race. So again, that's not what the only definition of a mashup, but as a proxy for like, we've been out here telling you that this is what it looks like to be in this world. This is what we see in our cities, in our communities. And this is who we are. And by putting us in verticals this way, you're ignoring the reality of the nuances of being alive, which then also creates more divisions, which, and look at us now. That's all. <laughs> I know. But look at you now because the stories you amplify are so important. And I just, I'm so grateful that it exists. And, and truly, like, I want all of our listeners to listen. Listen to their podcast. Also listen to this one, obviously. But you've got time for more than one. So I think you guys are just truly 
stunning individuals. And what you're doing is so important. And I... I know you just said I'm nice. And so now I'm on. I don't want to give you a compliment because you're going to say I'm doing it just because I'm nice, but I genuinely mean it. I'm honored to have had this conversation with you. And I'm really proud of the work that's being done. And so thank you for taking the time. Also, now I have to say, actually, we do a lot of this work and we're, we've been we've been out here and doing interviews. And so I can give you a compliment, which is most of the time people don't do the work to prepare. And we're, we're, we're model minority type A preparers ourselves, but nerds, nerds, the best. AKA nerds. Yeah. <laughs> don't, the only us. way to be. But we're constantly surprised that people don't show up prepared for things. And it really does make it so joyful. And we're so, thank you for being so deeply engaged and for like having like immersed in the work. It makes such a big difference and it makes, this so fun to do. And you're asking such smart questions. Well, when you truly enjoy it, right, it becomes a part of who you are. So thank you. I'll take it. I really appreciate that. And even with a, a baby with bronchitis, you know, a sick baby. Jones has bronchitis right now. But you know what? It's all it's all good. He's going to be happy that we created this. He's going to be happy that this exists, you know. So <laughs> thank you guys so much. And where can everyone find you on your socials? I know they're going to want to seek you out. I know they're going to go to the mashupamericans.com and listen to everything. So give us all the good stuff. Okay, great. This is my job. So mashupamericans.com is our website where you can find hundreds and hundreds of stories, beautiful stuff, including you can find Grief Collected on there and and you can subscribe to our newsletter there. We are on any podcast platform. We've been putting out a podcast since 2015 and Grief Collected was the this newest season, new series after a, a hiatus for a couple of years. So it's just a joy. There's also meditations as part of it, which is another thing you'll get to experience. So it's it's very intellectual and then we try to help you get in your body for each episode. So mashupamericans.com and you can find us on any podcast platform where you are listening to this. Put in the Mashup Americans and the latest season is Grief Collected. And we also have a website, griefcollected.com, but I don't want to confuse you too much. So mashupamericans.com, you'll find all the good stuff there and also Mashup Americans on anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you don't know this, but I'm using my hands to do everything and I can't help it. I love it. And we have all those links in the show notes too. So for you guys listening, you know, it's hard to remember, especially if you're driving, don't pull, don't write anything down. Yeah. Just click on the links that we have. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, it's interesting. Doing an episode on grief is always a little difficult because we've, we're all experiencing grief in some form. I'm definitely experiencing more right now after the trauma I went through with Jones, my son, who's now eight months, but he was premature and came two months early and it was a lot. And so our family is still processing the grief. And so I'm so grateful that Rachel and Amy came on today and that they have this series called Grief Collected because it has helped me through the process. It's something that we are still going through. And for those of you who are listening and thinking, oh, we want to hear more about what happened, we will definitely have an episode coming up where I go into all of this because it's something I've wanted to share with you guys for a while. But processing the grief of it is and has been a lot for not just me, but our whole family. And so if you're going through something, 
that you define as grief, just know you're not alone and we're all in this together. And I really encourage you to go seek out this episode, obviously, and then also the Mashup Americans because they do a really good job helping you understand yourself and the grief that you're experiencing. I hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation today as much as I did. We have another great episode coming for you next week. Until then, take care. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Produced by Melissa D. Mons. Edited by Diane King. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with ACAST.